0: Welcome to Palace Confidential, your home of all the latest royal breaking news. We might still be in lockdown, but it won't stop us bringing you all the top stories this week. My guests today are the Daily Mail's Royal Editor Rebecca English, Saturday Diary Editor Richard Eden and Royal Writer Victoria Murphy. Here's what we'll be discussing today. Is Elizabeth the last Queen? We speak to the author of a controversial new biography of Her Majesty. And in light of these claims, we discuss what the future of the monarchy might look like. And a new pampered palace pup. We get the lowdown on the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's new pooch. But first, this week, the royal family marked Holocaust Memorial Day. Prince Charles paid tribute by saying that we can be the light that ensures the darkness can never return. While his daughter-in-law Kate spoke to some survivors of the atrocities of the Second World War. Let's have a look at the video of that conversation.
1: I think it was 2017 we met each other for the first time, wasn't it? It's lovely to see you again. You
0: may remember Ziggy and I met in 1944 in the camps. I and do. then by chance we met again later on and we are friends to this day. My younger brother was murdered in the camps. And mm. so instead of having four of us in the family, there were just three.
1: And how old was he, Manfred?
0: He was seven years old when he was taken into the camp and nine years old when he was taken away to be murdered.
2: You know, every morning they used to take out the dead bodies. So eventually I had where to sit down. And, you know, I like, can get rid of it, you know. Up till today, how could I think a thing like that? That to see somebody dying. Yeah. So I had where to sit down. That's what they made me do.
0: That was all very moving, Rebecca. What what else can you tell us about this call? The Duchess of
3: Cambridge spoke to two really remarkable men this week, uh, Ziggy Schipper, who's 91, and Manfred Goldberg, who is 90. And uh, incredibly, their friendship was formed in a Nazi concentration camp in 1944, and they've remained friends to this day. I mean, it's just, it is so moving and the Duchess met them in nineteen seventy. Uh, sorry in 2017 um, but she got, thanks to the um, Holocaust Educational Trust, got the chance to speak to them again to learn more about their experiences in the concentration camps which you know despite 70 odd years having passed are, are no less powerful. Uh, And also to try and talk to them about, uh, you know, the message they want to get across to the younger generation, which is please don't forget what happened to people like us. Learn from that experience and try to ensure that genocide on that scale never happens again. I mean, Manfred had a really powerful message, which was that uh, evil will only triumph if good voices remain silent. And uh, that's really what they wanted to get across through the call on Holocaust Memorial Day.
0: Mm. As you say, will never not be powerful. That Victoria, Mm. this is an area that Kate's focused on before, isn't it?
1: Certainly. I mean, it's something that all the royal family are continually focused on. It's really important to them to mark Holocaust Memorial Day, and they do so every year. Last year, Kate did something um, which was a little bit original. She actually took her own photographs of Holocaust survivors. We know that she's a very keen photographer, and that really resonated with a lot of people. And but this year no less powerful what she was doing kind of bringing back that message and as Rebecca said uh, she actually met Siggy and Manfred for the first time at Stutthof concentration camp in 2017 and I actually remember going there with William and Kate on that visit and know so so moving um and speaking to Ziggy and Manfred afterwards and one of the things that really came across was that they had actually been unsure about whether or not to go back to the camp it was the first time that they had been back there since they were prisoners um but they said that they decided to come for the royal visit and what you know they were saying can happen is that they really want to tell their story in order to remind people about what happened so that people don't forget and it doesn't happen again. And actually, the profile that the royal family has can really help them to do that. Uh, Richard, did you find Kate quite impressive here?
4: Yes, I thought Kate was a very good interviewer and wisely she left um, all the focus to be on the two men and their very powerful stories. I watched it last night and I was moved to tears by the end of um, just the first account because, you know, you, you read about these these things. But when you actually have a survivor saying in their own words what happened, it's it's horrendous. The first thing I did after switching off was um, say to my daughters, come on, you should watch this, too, um, because, you know, we've got to appreciate these people while they're still with us. They're you know very old men and still have that power to to move us. And I thought Kate did it well, she left them to do the talking and it was all the more powerful for that.
0: Rebecca, Prince Charles also played his role. How would uh, a visit and a, and a royal duty like this normally be split up between the family?
3: Yeah, well, although obviously most of the focus was on the Duchess of Cambridge because of course of the nature of the fact that she was speaking to two Holocaust survivors, actually events were led by the Prince of Wales. He's actually Patron of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, so he was the kind of statesman-like aspect of it. He he recorded a really poignant video message in which he talked about us being the light in the darkness and continuing to highlight um, the lessons of the past, and also took part in a virtual candle lighting ceremony with his wife, the Duchess of Cornwall. So, as I say, although you know people such as me, journalists such as me focused on the stories of Kate with Manfred and um, Ziggy because it was just so incredibly moving. Um, Events were led by the Prince of Wales and uh, it's something he has worked long and hard on over many, many decades, uh, trying to bring people together in acts of reconciliation, but also to enable
0: us to learn from the lessons of the past. We'll hear more from our panel in a moment, but now let's talk about a new biography of the Queen that's causing a bit of a stir at the moment. Clue as to why is in the title, it's called The Last Queen How Queen Elizabeth II Saved the Monarchy. The author thinks the monarchy is heading for something of a cliff edge. Let's see what he has to say.
2: The Queen has achieved remarkable stature in 70 years, and she has done that by basically being surprisingly an unknowable character, in that she's unknowable on two counts. First count is not. To, know any of her opinions particularly on politics or about people and secondly really not to know any of her feelings either so the two basic things you need to know to understand a person are missing and that's quite deliberate it's it's part of how she feels the monarch should seem this is the great trick that the queen has achieved that she's achieved authority without power charles um i think is quite different he fancies power And if he lusts after power in the way that he indicates he does, he will have no authority. The way that Charles would run the monarchy would be very much the way he's run his life so far. And that's what really I worry about, because he is by instinct and habit an autocrat in the sense that he has views. Um, He likes to recruit around him people who will create a royal echo chamber, so who will confirm his views and not argue with him. And that's not the kind of court that you need. It it sort of has the hint of an old-fashioned despotic monarch rather than a monarch who's democratic and open. William in particular... Mm has to be the bridge between the Queen, his father, and his own generation. That's a very difficult trick to perform. And I I think that Kate understands that equally well. And I think it's like they're the ideal rules in waiting, but they may have to wait a long while. This is the problem. If they didn't have to wait, if they could go straight in after the Queen, they would be much more suitable. William understands this trick that his um, grandmother has exercised so well, and that he has no hunger for power at all, I'm sure. But he does understand how you acquire. It's a cumulative thing that you set by example over the years. And he's doing that already. I think you can see that he has a, a quiet authority about him. I thought the way he went with the Queen to Porton Down as a companion, their first outing after the lockdown, and we didn't know at the time that he had had the virus and had recovered from it. So you could see that, that he was at He had a quiet authority of his own and he was reassuring to the Queen and the Queen liked to have him there. I think that was a very encouraging sign to see.
0: Clive Irving there, whose book is out now. Richard, going to come to you first. There's not a lot of love for Prince Charles there, calling him an autocrat. What what do you make of this?
4: Well, Clive is a long-term critic of the royal family. So I think for that, you know, he does have a bit of an axe to grind and that needs to be taken into account. Um, I thought basically he was unfair to um, Prince Charles. I I think a lot of what he said didn't ring true at all. I mean, the friends of Charles I've spoke to over the years have always made clear that Charles sees his role as king as being very different from that of the Prince of Wales. You know, he's had this role of the heir to the throne for so long. He had to forge a role for himself. Um, and speaking out on lots of different causes. And he knows he won't be able to do that as king. He accepts that and he sees it as part of that. So I think this idea that he's going to continue being exactly the same, which seems to be what is Clive's argument, um, doesn't ring true for me.
0: Victoria, there's been speculation for years and years and years and years now about what a King Charles monarchy would look like. But that's kind of, you know, coming into view now. What do you think the reality
1: will be? I think it will feel like a seismic moment for the nation and indeed for the world in terms of perception and in terms of symbolism, because obviously the Queen's reign has been so long and she came to the throne when Britain and the world were very different places. And she has built up that relationship with the public over so many years. And and Charles, of course, does does not have that and will not not have that as sovereign. Um, so I do think that that there will be change. I think that um, if Republicans have identified the end of the Queen's reign as a as a moment to spark renewed debate about the future of the monarchy, I think that would that would be right. I think that would be a sort of a moment when there might be renewed debate about the shift. And I certainly think when you look at things like the Commonwealth realms, the 15 countries outside of the UK where the Queen remains head of state, um, I, I think some of them have already started to talk about potentially not having her as a head of state, but I certainly think we may see that debate um, come to the fore again um, at the end of her reign.
0: Rebecca, uh, Clive says in this piece that Charles really wants power, so like power mad in a way, but he doesn't actually ironically have any power to hit back at these kind of comments. What, What do you think he makes of this kind of stuff?
3: He genuinely doesn't read it. I mean, there's just so much been written about him over the years. He he genuinely doesn't read it. But obviously, those around him who are paid to advise him do, I and mean, the stuff they do take notice of. But I think, as as others have touched upon, this is fairly well trodden ground. I don't think there is anything massively new in here. And I think what the advisers around the Prince of Wales have have come to realize is, and I want people to realize, is that. He, he is a very complex man but he's a very good man you know and he is driven and always has been to do the best that he can for this country whether it's through setting up the prince's trust or campaigning on issues such as the environment and i think they hope that people will come to appreciate him for that you know he he won't be you know that the cambridge's have the glamour the queen has the you know the residual respect and affection but he has been, you know, quietly doing good work to this country for many, many decades in the background. And I, I think that's just what they want to hope, they hope that people will, will appreciate.
0: The youth Queen Elizabeth is probably the last monarch we're going to see who, who has quite the same power and authority that, that she enjoys. Do you think that's fair? Do you think that we're likely to see that in a Charles monarchy? We say the word power and authority, but as as Victoria really
3: um, astutely pointed out, she doesn't actually have either of those because she is a constitutional monarch. But what she does have is huge residual respect and affection, which has been borne about through many, many decades on the throne. And that's where I actually feel quite sorry for the Prince of Wales, because he's had such a different role. He, He won't have had a lifetime to accumulate that as a monarch. He's probably going to become king in his kind of mid to to late 70s. I think he'll be a very, very different king. Um, And I think that's one that we're just going to have to see how that pans out. And as Victoria rightly said, he he says that he will pull back on his campaigning. He will very much focus on affairs of state and, and leave anything like that to obviously his heir. Prince William. So I, I don't know, I, I think it's a very, very difficult situation for him, given uh, the fact that he will only become king in his late 70s.
0: I just want to ask one more question. Maybe you can answer this, Richard. It's like, we think about when you watch things like The Crown, and there's been a lot of focus on the fact that, you, you know, this, this is a, a, a birthright that actually felt, has always felt like a bit of a burden to Prince Charles. And he sort of like spent so much of his life coloured by this fact that he's a he's a reluctant king. And ironically, he's worried about this all his life. And he's, he might get 15, 20 years at it at the most.
4: Well, I think one thing that's absolutely fascinating is the most powerful man in the world is now Joe Biden, who's taken the biggest job of his life at the age of 78. So remember, Prince Charles is only a sprightly 72. So um, he might be thinking, you know what, actually, I'm, you know, still got a bit of time to practice for the big job.
1: Because of the system that we have, we are looking at a situation where our head of state is probably going to be in a pensioner for the foreseeable future, because people, you know, royals, people are living for long periods of time. And of course, one person doesn't take to the throne until the sitting sovereign dies. And so I think we have this situation now where unless we are going to start doing what some overseas monarchs do, which is embrace the concept of abdication. Um, I think that we are going to have a very, very elderly head of state in this country if we keep the system that we currently have.
0: Happier news now, as the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge welcomed a brand new bundle of joy into their family this week. And no, it's not another baby. It's something much better than that, if you ask me. It's a new puppy. The Mail on Sunday's Royal Editor, Emily Andrews, broke this exclusive story.
5: So the Cambridges had a black Cocker Spaniel called Lupo, who was a wedding present from Kate's brother, James Middleton, in early 2012. And it was the first dog for Kate and William, and he became a much-loved favourite part of the Cambridge family. He was the first Cambridge baby, really. And in fact, when George was first born, William said that his priorities were Catherine, George and Lupo, and then at the end of November last year, in a very unusual personal post, Kate and William posted on their Instagram site, Kensington Royal, that very sadly Lupo had died the previous weekend. But as I revealed this week, the Cambridges had actually been given a new puppy, the latest addition to their family. It's a girl, so Kate's new baby girl. And they were given the puppy again by James Middleton, who breeds spaniels. In fact, last summer, James had had a litter of six adorable puppies, three black, three chocolate, with one of his dogs, Luna, who was actually Lupo's sister. This new puppy is Lupo's niece. The Cambridge's dogs, they are they like to keep it secret, it is more closely guarded than the crown jewels. The, the Cambridge dogs and what their names are. George and Charlotte and Louis all helped pick the new puppy, and apparently, she's settling in very well.
0: That was Emily Andrews there. Coming to you, Victoria, the dogs are a really big deal for the royal family, aren't
1: they? A huge deal for the royal family, and I think very much certainly when it comes to the queen as part, part of her identity, and I think that's really interesting because. You know, having corgis and, and loving horses is, has nothing to do with the role of head of state. But it's become completely synonymous with when we think of our head of state, when we think of monarchy, we think of, we think of corgis, you know, because of her preferences and because of who she is. Other members of the royal family have dogs, they have different breeds of dogs and, and pets are, you know, a really important part of a family life for all of them. Rebecca,
0: there does seem to be this strange kind of shroud of secrecy over the royal pets and revealing them. But surely something like owning the family dog only makes them more relatable. What what do you think's behind that?
3: Yeah, cards on the table. This really does irritate me. Um, I am long in the tooth enough to remember when... Lupo first came on the scene and Royal aides refused to even confirm his existence, let alone his name, because it was an issue of privacy. And it was a time where, you know, some senior royal courtiers were subsequently admitted to me that it was a bit silly and didn't really cover themselves in glory. And yet here we are in the same situation again. No official confirmation that they have a new puppy and uh, definitely no official confirmation of... A name, um, which is really strange because obviously they adored Lupo uh, so much so they announced the fact that he died on social media, which I thought was lovely. You know, in Britain, we love our dogs. Um, and I think that resonated with a lot of people. So I genuinely can't understand why there is this reluctance to just be honest about it. Um, I, I'm told the name will come out, it will probably eke out in the course of some official engagement. But I, I I just don't understand why they're doing that. Um, and I have to say, for the record, I am the owner of a new puppy in the last couple of weeks. And I can tell you, he's a boy. He's called Finnegan, known as Finn. And um, yeah, you can ask me any questions about that. I'm happy to go on the record. <laughs> well, you,
0: you heard it here first, Palace Confidential viewers. It's like, that's an exclusive. Richard, no corgis seem to be making it into the royal household anymore. That, that, that's been the Queen's trademark for so long. Are they just out of favour now?
4: I'm a big fan of corgis, and I want to know, is that what you've got, Rebecca? Have you got a corgi?
0: No, I haven't got a corgi.
3: They're quite nippy corgis, actually. Um, I've encountered the Queen's corgis a few times. We've (laughs) gone for a a little Labrador Spaniel cross, um, who is adorable. But don't start me on him, because I won't shut up.
4: (laughs) Well, I'm such a fan of corgis that my favourite face mask has got a picture of the Queen's dogs when there were still seven of them. You've always been cool, Richard. It, it always gets a laugh anyway. Um, but no, I have heard that one thing in America, they're starting to become very popular. Um, and I think this is to do with the, the success of the Netflix hit The Crown, that the, I think it's the Kennel Club of America last year said that um, the corgis were among their top breeds. I can't remember if it was top 10 or top 20, but you know maybe there will be a bit of a renaissance in them because you don't see that many in Britain anymore.
3: They're, they're massive on tiktok there's quite a lot of corgis action on tiktok and there's quite a few really well-known corgis with their own accounts so it's worth it there is a boon thing
0: honestly the things you learn on palace confidential everybody get involved i'm afraid that's all we have time for this week thanks as ever to my guests rebecca english victoria murphy and richard eden but especially to you for tuning in see you next time